0: When I look back and I think about the most hurtful things I've ever said, almost always these things erupted not when I was feeling strong or powerful, but when I was feeling weak, diminished, but still knew I held one final weapon. One small piece of power, my words. Today on Snap Judgment, we've got a whole episode about the power of words. We're calling it Borders Between Us. And we begin with a story, a personal story, by Saeed T. John Thomas Jr., he's a poet, a writer, and radio producer living in New York City. Snap Judgment.
1: Hey, Google. Pause. I don't know what's on the other side, but I know what it's like being here. How hard even simple things can be, like touching a slab of stone with your mother's name on it the dirt from your father's plot still stamped into your favorite blue jeans. I can't tell you how long until you get to the place where you are in control, but where you are in control... (sighs) It always starts off so good for me. Like here, I just listened to some Afro beats so my mood is right, I'm alone in my room, and I start writing about my parents, about how much I miss them, how much I appreciate them for all the sacrifices they made for me. Walk as tall as your father, be as humble as your mother. But then it always gets to this point, this one point, where I start to write about my mother. Oh, no, I don't like that sentence. This is always where I start doubting myself. How does a humble person, what does a humble person do? I don't know the answer to that question because I barely knew my mother. And it's hard to write about a person you barely knew. But here I am, trying anyway. Walk as tall as your father, be as slow to speak as your mother, and know that she just wanted you to be better than her. I delete, I revise, but in the end, I always know when I'm lying to myself. I always know when I'm making things up because I want to sound cool or because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I know when I'm bullshitting. But you know there's an end and when you're gone, people won't remember your regrets. I even that line, I don't even fucking what is that what are we talking about there? People won't remember your regrets. What? People won't of course people won't remember your regrets. I'm struggling to write about my mother here because I don't want to appear ungrateful. Since she passed 10 years ago, the only things I ever say about her is how much I appreciate her for bringing me to America. I'm pretty sure it's what every good immigrant child is supposed to do. In my case, since my mother died, I can't even write about the fights we had, and the long silences between us. Just listen to how mad I sound here. When you're gone, people won't remember your regrets. Like, what? Shut the fuck up. Okay, whatever. So, what's the story here? I'm gonna tell you what the story is here. But first, I gotta get over this block. I have to try to write honestly about the relationship I had with my mother. The room. My room couldn't have been that messy when she walked in. Maybe a stray sock stuck out from underneath my bed. A bowl from last night's dinner on the nightstand, a t-shirt in front of the hamper, a jacket off its hanger everything just slightly out of place. But it was disorganized enough that my mother shouted my name like the world was ending. Saeed! When I reached the room, she didn't say a word. Her eyes did all the talking. For months now, they had become the color of the hallway light. So yellow, it looked like she'd swallowed the bulb. She shuffled over towards me, and she moved slower these days, but her anger was still one of the healthiest things about her. It was the one thing the chemo hadn't taken away. When my mother started yelling, I couldn't figure out why she was so upset. I was 16, and my room wasn't even that messy. But what my mother understood that I didn't was that her world was ending. She was running out of time, had a few months at best, And if she hadn't gotten through to me yet these small lessons of manhood, like keeping your room clean, brushing your teeth, applying deodorant on in the morning, if she was losing these tiny battles, then what would happen to me? Who would help me become a man when she was gone? And what would my failure say about her as a mother? I couldn't read between those lines. I just kept thinking my room was not that messy. She talked and yelled until I grew sick of her voice. I needed her to shut up. I don't remember what I said, but I remember the shock that fell across her face when I said it. Like I gave her a glimpse of the disappointment I would become. Like I was no longer her son. She pursed her lips, shuffled back to her room, and shut the door behind her. And as I stomped back down the stairs, I said to myself the words that would haunt me all these years since. I wish you would just die already and get it over with. I wish you would just die. I took a stand against my mother when she was at her lowest. I betrayed her and felt good about it. I finally planted my flag of rebellion against her and won. But now, ten years later, I need to try and take that flag down and put it away. Just months after she gave birth to me in Sierra Leone, my mother was faced with a choice. She could stay in Freetown with my father and they could raise their newborn together as a family, or she could make one last trip to America. If she went to America, she could renew her visa, which was expiring in a few months. She could work and she could start filling out the necessary paperwork to become a citizen. At the time, it was clear to my parents that this choice made the most sense. Besides, in just a couple of years, they thought, all the immigration documents would be approved and my father and I could join her in the States. There, the love between a wife and her husband could be renewed and the bond between a mother and a son could be formed before son even spoke his first words. In just a few short years, our family could be reunited. So when I was about one year old, my mother left. She gifted me my father's name, Saeed Tijan Thomas Jr., and she boarded a plane for America. But by the time I'm three years old, I'm still in Sierra Leone. My father throws me a birthday party. In a photo, I'm dressed in a navy blue mini suit a yellow dress shirt underneath a tiny waistcoat. I'm snot-nosed and smiling next to my birthday cake while other children dance around me. At four years old, I'm speaking. I'm saying enough words now to be able to respond yes or no. My father is often pulling me away from playtime and putting a phone up to my ear. The woman on the other end of the phone asks me how school is going, if my father is taking good care of me. I say yes, no, whatever will get me back to my friends the fastest. By the time I'm five years old, I can understand what my father means when he says the woman on the other end of the phone is your mother. I understand that it means something important that she's in America and that America is a good place to be but I don't understand how to feel about this woman I don't remember meeting. How is she the same or different from all the women in Sierra Leone who have been helping my father to raise me? At age six, my father tells me she's coming to visit. Months later, my mother walks through our doors. And when I see her face for the first time, I'm not sure how to react. Her name, Is Aminata. She has skin much lighter than mine, and her smile is warm and bright. The gold jewelry around her wrists, her rows of necklaces, her sweet scent. She looks like a gift, but a gift that doesn't quite belong to me. Over the next two weeks, I spend almost every night in bed with my mother and father. I wake up within reach of both my parents for the first time I can remember and I'm holding my mother the closest. At seven, my father tells me it's almost time. The papers filed were now approved. The flight would be purchased soon. My mother was waiting. At eight years old, I board a plane for America. My mother had sacrificed eight years away from us for this moment— But it didn't look the way they expected. My papers were the only ones approved. Not my father's. I'd be joining her, but I'd be going alone. i take one last look at my father before stepping onto the plane. He smiles. He waves. He would never join us. The next eight years I spent with my mother in America were not what I had expected. Her smile was still bright, but I rarely saw it. And when she came home after long hours of tending to the homes of white folks, my mother didn't have the time or the patience to play with me, to joke, to make up for all the years we lost with each other. She'd rented a room in a small apartment for the two of us, and we shared the same bed again, but most nights we slept on opposite ends.
2: you watching Disney Channel.
1: I remember watching Disney Channel, admiring the white mothers whose only job seemed to be making their children happy.
2: I said I was sorry. <sighs> Don't stop the love. We'll make a deal. You come home when you're supposed to, and from now on, no bedtime. Mm.
1: I remember begging my mother to sign me up for sports, hoping she would show up to games and yell obnoxiously things like, that's my boy. But as she worked well into the night, I walked home alone after games, warmed up cold food from the fridge, sat in front of the television and wished I was white. If I wanted her to be like the white moms on Disney Channel, then she wanted me to be like a young Barack Obama, the African kid who brought home straight A's and would go on to be so successful he could save her from the night shift. But the only thing I brought home from school was trouble. I stole, I fought, I cheated on tests. I got into trouble because trouble gave me an identity, one that was more interesting than the one my mother had in mind for me. My mother and I, it always felt like we were not who we wanted each other to be. Like the only thing we had in common was that we were trying to survive in America. By the time I was 14, we'd gotten word that my father died back home. And at 16, I'm standing in the hallway with my mother again. She tells me she's found a lump. A few months later, she was gone too. Another poem for my mother. For the first few years of my life, there was a voice on the other end of the line that I did not recognize. I heard it on my birthday, on Eid, and whenever I was sick. The voice always seemed to call when there was something to celebrate or something that needed mending. It was my mother's voice, reminding me that she was always there, even when she wasn't. We held the whole relationship over the phone, from dial tone to ring to the operator announcing that the credit was almost finished we talked on borrowed time, trying to maintain connection and ocean apart. Even though all she did was ask me questions and all I did was answer yes or no, it brought me some small comfort, her voice. A few days after she died, I tried to call her. I laughed at myself when I picked up the phone. What was it that I had to say to this woman that made me foolish enough to forget that she was no longer here? I think I finally know the answer. I want to do what she did for me growing up. I want to ask her questions. What What happened happened to to the the woman woman on the phone? Why were you so different in America? Was I a disappointment to you? Was I the reason you died? How are you doing today?
2: Well, I'm good, thank God.
1: And maybe it's not too late to know what my mother would say.
2: lovely out there, lovely day, sunny. So I
1: traveled back across the ocean to find out.
0: After the break, Saeed returns to Sierra Leone to see what he can find out about his mother. Snap Judgment. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. When last we left, Saeed, who's about to get on a plane to go back to his homeland, Sierra Leone, to find out more about his gone but not forgotten mother. Snap Judgment.
1: So I'm working on this story about getting to know my mom a little bit more and um, kind of working through the difficulties between me and her's relationship, but also um, just trying to figure out who she was outside of me and what what led to the short time that me and her had together like what um i think by now you know i have maybe you don't but i have like a lot of regrets and things that i wish i could have said to her and things i wish were different between me and her um and i thought you might be one of the best people to help me work through some of that stuff because you knew her and you and her aren't that far in age and, uh, yeah.
2: Is that all the introduction?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the introduction.
2: Okay, well we're on to it. Okay.
1: I'm sitting with my mother's sister, Kadija Jatusuma, or as I like to call her, Auntie Kari. We're in her modest apartment on the west end of London. She sits up in bed and rests her back on a pile of pillows. From almost any angle, Antikadi's face resembles my mother's. The smooth brown cheekbones. How they rise all the way up to meet her small eyes when she smiles. How those eyes can command respect and invite you in at the same damn time. From this angle, though, her left side, I see the only difference between her and my mother. A single gold tooth. Every time she speaks, it shines. Even though they share similar features, Antikadi jokes that when they were younger... People always said my mother was the pretty one, and she agreed.
2: Very beautiful. A woman that's loving. Oh my God, she was classy. Everyone loves her. People, oh oh my God. I'm telling you, side your mom, she just came like flower.
1: When you look at her, what was your favorite feature about her?
2: Her smile. Her smile when she smile at you. Honestly, you love a human being. Said, I'm sure you saw that.
1: I did see that. It wasn't hard to notice my mother's smile and radiant beauty, but it was hard to know the woman behind it. I had no idea what she was like growing up, before America.
2: Very athletic. She was sporty. We have so many medals, cups in our house, just in her name.
1: Would you guys sometimes talk about, um, you know, what you wanted to be when you grow up and like your aspirations and your hopes and dreams?
2: Yeah, I, mean, I wanted to be a lot of stuff because she was very intelligent. She wanted to be a secretary.
1: When she was about my age, in her early 20s, my mother traveled to Europe, spent holidays in Switzerland, attended school in England, and earned her certificate as a secretary. Then she moved back home, got her dream job, before marrying my father. This portrait my aunt was painting of a younger Aminata, it didn't quite match the mother I knew. Why was she so reserved? reserved. Why?
2: You were not the only one. She was, like, quiet still.
1: Auntie Kadi says my mother was always the kind of person who kept to herself, even from her sisters. But something about coming to America made her retreat even more into herself.
2: It made it worse. She wasn't social. All she does was work. Mm. Work, work, work. Work home.
1: My mother and I could be in the same room and not say much to each other. We could be listening to the same song that we both liked, but never sing along together. Our distance may have been because she was tired and stressed from work. I got that. But I still resented her. Besides... Back in Sierra Leone, I was used to living with a parent who made me feel special. My father. It was just different. He was he was a different person. I mean, you know him. Like, he was very likable. He was, when he cares about you, he's, you know, plays with you. Like, he would take me to the beach every Sunday, and he would give me, he spoiled me. He gave me anything I ever wanted, and I just felt like the center of his world. It was unique it was like the only i've never experienced anything like that and so when i think about him i don't have any regrets like even when he died i was sad but like i don't i just feel so at peace with I, that I,
2: I, I think your mother was just trying to be to make you be a man everything she does for you with you was like i'm preparing him for tomorrow and she will tell me it's him, a man him be man, I'm man. I can remember that, said
1: Lafam. Naman. Don't worry, he's a man, Ma'an says. That was my mother's motto for raising me. But I wasn't a man. I was a boy. And that young, it was hard to tell the difference between tough love and being pushed away. So I ran straight into the arms of trouble. A list of petty crimes I committed growing up. There was a time I fought a kid over a bag of chips. The time I stole CDs from the mall so I could burn copies and raise money for new sneakers. The time I roamed the streets with other kids who were searching for something their parents couldn't give. We popped tires on parked cars for fun and called each other family. Then, after I discovered what you could do with a cigarette lighter and a can of Axe body spray, my school had to punish me for bringing a weapon onto school grounds. A flamethrower. I was expelled. That's the time I felt more more of a disappointment to her than any other time. Uh, that's the time I felt like wow, like I really am just not a good son and I'm not I'm not I'm just not ever going to get this right. And I'm wondering, I guess, if she ever talked to you about that?
2: Never. Never. Never said. She had never talked bad, thing, anything bad about you. Really? Say, yeah. Serious. Nothing bad.
1: It was, a, I, I got, it was, I just remember it being so bad. Like, I would get suspended. It's, it's a, it's I got a, expelled. Yeah. Like, it was, like, so bad.
2: Is, that's, no. Listen, A parents would discipline you. The only time she had said something is when those boys attack you. She called me here, she was so angry, I mean furious, very angry. All
1: oh, right. the boys attacking me. I had forgotten all about this story. During my terror of pissing people off, I had pissed off the wrong kid. After school, he showed up to my house while my mom was at work. I saw him through the peephole flanked by two guys bigger than him, but I stepped out anyway. Fuck it. Next thing I knew, I was eating size 9 Nike boots and Air Forces as they stomped me out on my welcome mat. After a few seconds of furious kicks and punches to my curled-up body, they ran away. And I got up, dusted myself off, and yelled something into the wind about how I'd get them back, knowing damn well I wouldn't. And I went inside. Days later, my mom asked me why I was limping, and I told her, she asked if I was okay. I said yes. And we left it at that. After all the stress I'd put her through, I didn't expect her to have sympathy for another one of my troubles. And I thought she didn't. But apparently, she'd called my aunt. Uh,
2: so wouldn't go
1: you may have noticed my auntie Kadi sometimes slips into Creole. She's doing that here. She's saying that my mother called her after the boys attacked me. When she picked up the phone, apparently my mom said to her, some boys went and beat up Saeed. I'm going to go see the head teacher today. My stomach has been in knots. The pain feels like giving birth to a child again. They're trying to kill my child. I swear to God if those boys touch my son again, I'll find a gun for them. Ma just laughed her off. The way she's laughing with me now. She told her, if you find a gun for those boys, they'll lock you up in that country. When my mom said, I don't care. Let them lock me up.
2: They had given you a good visit. She was so angry.
1: This caught me completely by surprise. My mother was always angry at me because I gave her lots to be angry about. But she was willing to pick up a gun and fight. For me. Huh. I've never seen the white moms on Disney Channel do that. But why would my mom hide that from me?
2: Because it was all by herself and the children, all by herself.
1: My aunt says my mother wasn't the kind of person who laughed all the time, or even told you what was on her mind and how much she loved you. She was the kind of person who thought hiding your emotions is the best way to protect the people you love.
2: I mean, as I don't play, she doesn't know how to dance.
1: Did you catch that? She said my mother didn't know
2: how to dance. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> I'm serious. Wait,
1: she doesn't know how to dance?
2: Honestly, it's the way, my mother dances.
1: Sometimes I just wish I could just tell her, like, the reason I was doing all this stuff. And I, I just wish I could just tell her, like, I'm not bad. I'm not a bad kid. When she would like talk to me and tell me the things that was how I was destroying my life, basically, and how I was like disappointing her, I would I would understand her. You know, it it's not like I couldn't understand. I would. Un, it's like I was seeing myself through her eyes and I could see what she was saying. But I just couldn't really translate that to my life because other things were more important. You know, like getting other kids to like me at that age was like more important to me than listening to my mom, you know? It was really, it was, it was really hard for me that I, that I couldn't tell her that, you know, that I couldn't just tell her, I'm not doing this to hurt you. I just don't know what is going on with my life right now. My mother was buried in Sierra Leone. My papers weren't right, so I couldn't attend the funeral. I could never visit the cemetery or kneel beside the headstone to forgive and be forgiven, to make amends, to sit and simply cry. They were just the photos of the funeral that I never kept and the poems I wrote that never felt enough. But in February of this year, 10 years after she died, I went home and I saw her grave for the first time. I didn't know what I would say to her. But as the tears began, the only thing I could utter was, I'm sorry. Everything she'd worked for had finally come to pass. I had the good job, the American passport, the freedom to travel the world and chase my dreams just as she had when she was younger. But I was too late. I know we don't always get to see the results of our sacrifices but I was sorry that she couldn't see me become the man she'd fought so hard to create. I was sorry I couldn't save her from the night shift, from myself, before we ran out of time.
2: You don't have to be, you, you were a child, said so What do you want to give your mom at that age? Excuse me, a child have to play, a child have to be disturbing. Don't do that. She was just being hard on you for you to be a better person. You understand? You never, you've not, you haven't done nothing, okay?
1: But it felt like, it felt like my responsibility, it just feels like I was responsible for something. It just feels like no, I, no, 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 no. it feels like I couldn't stop Something or I was supposed to make things better. I was the person she was grooming to be, the person to help her. I but and I put her through so much stuff. It just felt like it was my fault.
2: No, 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 Said, I was there. You didn't. She she had never felt any bad thing about you, Said. No, you were a poor baby. You were small. Well, I don't say that, I beg you. You haven't done nothing, nothing wrong. You were her idol. She was just being firm with you for you to be a a man for today. That's not your fault.
1: And maybe my aunt is right. It's perfectly normal that as a teenager, trouble is all I could afford to give my mother. And her saying this, it almost frees me. But I know I haven't told my aunt the whole truth. There's still one thing that hasn't let me go. The thing I couldn't even bring myself to ask my mother forgiveness for at her grave. There's one more thing that um, I feel like I need to say to you. I've never said this to anyone before. I've never told anyone this before, but this is a thing that happened. And... um. We were home together. I think it was just me and her. And and uh I had I think I hadn't cleaned my room or like it was just like kind of messy and um I started to tell her about stairs. the rooms like yelling. She was like so my mother's angry. anger. Angry like she was the kind of my anger. I start yelling back at her. I don't even know. Exactly and the thing I said after the argument, die. Just die because I can't do this anymore. I wish you would just die already. I wish you would just die. Do you think that thing that I said to myself, where I felt like I was wishing my mom was dead, do you think that's something that she could forgive, that any mother could forgive?
2: Why not? Said, it's how you felt. She had upset you. Said, if he, even if he had said it, she heard it. It's just what you feel like saying that moment inside. You understand? Your mom is a very forgiving person. She will. Even me, I'd said bad, bad things like...
1: It might have been my eyes turning red or my voice beginning to crack, but she could tell I wasn't convinced that my mother would have forgiven me. So my aunt kept making her case. She told me a story about when she was young and angry at my mother.
2: I mean, I was bad. I'm serious. I...
1: My mom and her other sisters were going out.
2: They were going to a theater to go and watch some concerts. I went to do laundry. They left me.
1: <laughs> when she found out that they'd left to go to the concert without her, she was so angry. She prayed that God would crash their car.
2: I see Papa God for lake. God make them get big, big accidents. <laughs> <laughs> you can't believe it. They had, They almost died.
1: When my mom got back home, she told the family they'd gotten into an accident, a pretty bad one. Their car had flipped over on the way to the concert, and my grandma, who had heard my aunt cursing her sisters earlier in the day, immediately launched into yelling at Auntie Kadi, chasing her around the house to beat her, calling her a witch.
2: (laughs) That witch, man! That witch! That witch, man! I need a witch.
1: As I laughed at how ridiculous this whole scene must have been, my aunt getting her ass whipped for something that was obviously not real, I started to realize what she was trying to say. In our family, maybe in every family, we get pissed off and say things we don't mean. Sometimes we wish bad things on each other. And if those things come to pass, maybe somebody gives you a name, like witch, and punishes you. Or maybe you give yourself a name like ungrateful, or a disappointment, and you spend years punishing yourself. But in reality, I'm no more of a disappointment than my aunt was a witch. It's obvious, I know, but if I couldn't hear it from my mother, I needed to hear it from her sister. If Azikadi is capable of any magic, it's in her laughter. The way she laughs at what I thought was my greatest regret, the way she makes my shame vanish, into thin air.
2: Ah, Don't go sleep, yeah.
1: (laughs) My aunt just scoffs at me and tells me to go to sleep. She removes her gold crown and crawls into bed. And I'm left feeling happier than I've ever felt about my mother. Borders between us. It's not just about forgiveness. It's about sacrifice. From the time I was born, you gave up so much of your own life to bring me to America. And when I arrived, I saw how that decision was still taking its toll on you, on us. So I learned to make peace with your silence and anger. I learned not to question it, to not write about it. But 10 years after your death, I felt like I owed it to your sacrifices to tell the full story. We weren't close. By the time I met you in America, we were reunited, yes, but there were still borders between us. We didn't share displays of unconditional love, affection, or forgiveness. It felt like we were immigrants to each other. Two people speaking different languages, trying to make things work in a new country. You, learning to dance from job to job, traveling by bus and yellow taxi with nothing but tokens and lip balm in your purse, finding ways to provide for the new eight-year-old child in your life, trying to keep us on our feet long enough until dad could join. You must have been so lonely. You must have been disappointed with the way things turned out, with how little you gained for sacrificing so much. At the very least, you needed to raise a man. And me, so tired of holding my tongue about the pressures of being a mother's last hope, I let go and said the wrong thing at the wrong time but now i know i didn't know any better and maybe neither of us did but now i do know so, so some, some days, days i pick up my favorite up photo, of you of you smiling, photo of you smiling and i put on one of your favorite songs that 80s lisa Stansfield track about finding the person you love I hold the small portrait of your face with both hands outstretched in front of me, and I dance with you, pretending we always held each other this close, that we always smiled at each other this way, that we never gave up anything.
0: Was told to us by Saeed T. John Thomas Jr. and produced by Said and Jay Allison for the public radio website transom.org transom.org where you'll find the original version of this story along with ideas tools workshops for telling your own story listen what I tell you Jay Allison is one of my earliest mentors in radio and transom.org is an invaluable resource for anyone who wants to explore the universe of audio storytelling transom.org Music that you heard was by Bobby Lord and Timothy Ogumbiyi. Funding came from the National Endowment of the Arts and the supporters of Transom.